Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. I'm Shreya Gupta, and along with Behind the Knife team, uh, we are here to discuss opioids. Uh, we are covering this topic because one of our listeners requested this topic. And so please keep sending us um, your suggestions at Behind the Knife on Twitter or btkpodcast at gmail.com. So today we have the pleasure of um, discussing this topic with Dr. Michael Engelsby. He's a professor of surgery at University of Michigan in the section of transplant surgery. He completed his undergrad training at Yale followed by his medical school at Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. He completed his general surgery residency at University of Michigan with a two-year research fellowship at University of Washington. He's an associate director of the Michigan Surgical Quality Collaborative, which directs the Michigan Surgical Home and Optimization Program. He also co-directs the Michigan Opioid Prescribing and Engagement Network. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's an honor. So we would like to start um, this podcast just by kind of discussing where are you from, how, um, what shaped your career path so far? Uh, sure. Well, thanks for asking. Um, so I'm from right outside of Philadelphia in the town of uh, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Um, I, uh, I went uh, to college at Yale. I um, always wanted to be a surgeon. I think I decided in uh, middle school uh, I was going to be a surgeon. It's actually a cool story. A guy who's a cardiac surgeon here at the University of Michigan came to my middle school class on a career day, and he had done one of the first heart transplants in the city of Philadelphia. And uh, I wrote some essay, like, I'm going to be a transplant surgeon when I grow up. And then whatever the time period is between seventh grade and your, re- your beginning of your residency, um, I show up at the University of Michigan. He had since moved there. And I, he's a very distinctive looking person. I saw him in the hallway and I was like, hey, Dr. Deeb, um, you came to my middle school class like 15 years ago. Um, and he's been a, a mentor to me since. It's kind of a you know small world. But uh, yeah, I never really changed my mind. And what brought you into the world of quality improvement? So uh, I matched the University of Michigan. I've been here over 20 years and um, kind of the the kind of the father of, of surgical quality improvement was this guy, Skip Campbell. And he was uh, the program director when I matched and he's been my primary mentor since. And uh, I kind of inherited his shop for lack of a better description that, and, you know, lots of other kind of uh, very uh, successful health services researchers like John Bergmeier and Justin Dimmick have been here. So it's kind of hard not to um, do health services research and, uh, quality improvement if you're at the University of Michigan. And then we very lucky we have a, a lot of resources through Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Michigan and the State Department of Health and Human Services to try to kind of have nurses and doctors drive quality improvement and change across the state. So um, so it's just kind of a, uh, you know, you take advantage of the opportunities you're given and um, it's, it's a good platform for change. But there's no question that the Quality Collaborative out of Michigan really sets the tone. And uh, you guys have done such wonderful work and had some really impactful papers that are out there. 
That story about medical or about middle school was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> what are the chances of that? We're going to talk a little bit today as we go into the dissection of the day about the opioid epidemic. I, you know, reaches a lot of the national headlines and uh, people and our listeners may hear it or see it on the news. Can you put it into a little bit of perspective? What is it that we're really talking about? Um, yeah, great, uh, great question. Um, well, I guess, uh, why is a transplant surgeon trying to fix this problem? So as a transplant surgeon, as you know, um, you do, um, you do donors and you do recipients. And I was on donor call about four or five years ago, and I had a weekend where I did three um, donors in a row, and they were all young women uh, who had an opioid overdose. And it was one was from like, uh, uh, who got hooked on heroin and overdose, but her, her story was one of a sports injury in high school where she got opioids after surgery. Another one was a wisdom tooth extraction who got hooked on opioids. And the third one was a young girl who was a high school senior who was at a graduation party and experimented with opioids and alcohol. And it, uh, it was kind of five years ago. I hadn't really heard anyone speak of the opioid epidemic, but certainly it struck a chord with me. And this all happened over about a 24 to 36 hour period and motivated my uh, interest. And I partnered with some awesome people. This woman, Jen Walji, is a plastic surgeon. This gentleman, uh, Chad Brummett, who's a pain doc anesthesiologist, to try to understand how we as surgeons or acute prescribers are part of this problem. And the story of, you know, like, for example, the girl with the wisdom tooth, um, you know, presumably an opioid naive person. We, someone like you or I, a surgeon or a dentist, prescribe opioids. Um, and that initial exposure can really change someone's life forever. Um, that kind of narrative resonated as a potential way that we could be part of the solution. And I think as surgeons, we usually fix kind of downstream problems, but it was kind of exciting to be part of a major public health problem and try to prevent it from getting any worse. So uh, in summary, I think we as surgeons are a big part of this. There is a role for acute prescribers like surgeons and dentists to do better work. And then also the goes into, you know, kind of poor access to mental health care, addiction services. University of Michigan, we have a lot more liver transplant surgeons than we have addiction specialists in a community of 3,000 physicians. So there's just not adequate access to care. But, you know, it's kind of out of my um, bandwidth to, to kind of to focus a lot on the uh, care of the addicted patients we've really been focusing on trying to prevent this epidemic um, from getting any worse and uh, have some impact on it. If you wanted to like put some numbers um, onto th this problem that you just described, what would you give, uh, what would you say? What are the statistics of addiction related to surgeon prescribing or even make it broader for like any physician prescribing these medications? Yeah. Um, there's no great data on this, but, as far as, so the pathway from kind of towards kind of overdose starts with an opioid naive person. So 90% of heroin users got their first prescription after dental care, surgical care, emergency care. And uh, of patients who are exposed, let's say you do a lap coli on someone, opioid naive patient, and then you ask them 90 days later, are you still taking your opioids? About 6% of people go from opioid naive to kind of new persistent uh, opioid use after elective surgery. That's opioid knife patients. So these aren't people with who come in on chronic opioids uh, or on intermittent opioids. And that number ranges between 
probably about 5% in adolescents up to upwards of 20% with people who have you know, bad cancer, for example. I think the number is 19% for women who have um, systemic therapy, um, radiation, mastectomy, and bilateral reconstruction. So you know, long term, um, they become kind of, quote, stuck on opioids. Um, of that, those patients, so let's say if you did a, a you know, a thousand lap coles, you'd have 60 patients who are kind of become new chronic opioid users. Most of them, uh, presumably will eventually just kind of stop. There's no great data to know how many of that, those 60 patients will move on to kind of heroin use, true addiction, um, and substance use disorder. And then, and then from there we'll overdose. It's probably about one or 2% one or two percent of the 60. So the number is still small, but you can certainly see how um, uh, uh, we as surgeons who write for the majority of acute op opioids for obviously surgical care, dental care, broken bones, things like that, how we kind of are the uh, entryway or the gatekeeper, so to speak, of this uh, devastating epidemic. With that said, you know, there's a lot coming out of your group and there's other people that are studying this. And so it, what's in the literature right now? What do we know and what what are the some of the current guidelines out there for addressing this problem? Um, great. Uh, great question. So, uh, yeah, this has been obviously a hot topic. And um, and I think the fact that we've had a good bit of impact in our state is because of the, the collaboratives that we we have. And also we we started looking into this three or four years ago, kind of um, right when uh, I think it was becoming kind of clear that there was a kind of major public health problem. Um, similarly, a group in, the group in Dartmouth really inspired a lot of our work, and they uh, have a great paper that shows that among surgical prescribing, uh, upwards of 70% of pills are left over. Um, and uh, those leftover pills really can fuel the epidemic. Um, one of my partners, Give a talk at a high school about a mile from our hospital and ask the uh, you know the 16 year olds in the room how many of you can get your hands on opioids in an hour and the majority raise their hand. So there's just in Michigan alone there's about 60 million extra pills that are left over. Um, so a lot of work we've been doing in Michigan is to try to get those pills out of communities. We have kind of twice a year we have um, opioid uh, recovery drives and we um, had over 60 sites um, the last one a couple of weeks ago and and got. Um, many thousand pounds of pills out of the community. So um, the data on overprescribing is that most patients don't take, take a relatively small um, number of the pills that we give them. Um, and that number uh, is about 70%. We've kind of done the same experiment and showed the same number. Um, presumably that's coming down because prescribing is, is starting to come down. Um, so that's overprescribing. That's one problem. And then two is the new chronic opioid use. Um, and uh, several groups have, uh, shown that um, that's essentially the opioid naive patient. And some other, I think, important data involves um, dental care. Um, and particularly adolescents, young adults are at risk of kind of chronic opioid use when they're exposed. And um, the number of uh, the percent of uh, adolescents who are, take opioids after wisdom tooth extraction, as opposed to those that don't, uh, they're about two and a half fold more likely to go on to chronic opioid use. So it's kind of a devastating number if you think, you know, I bet the majority of people listening to this podcast have had their wisdom tooth removed. And amazing paper came out recently where you're, you're about 30 times more likely to prescribe opioids um, by a dentist in the United States than they are in the United Kingdom. So we write for a lot of opioids in the United States. And a lot of the work that we've done has been informed by 
kind of um, care pathways in uh, Europe, which has a relatively similar, um, you know, kind of health system, um, but they just take care of pain very differently. And, um, and they, they do, uh, they use fewer opioids and they use kind of many other uh, strategies. So. Let's talk a little bit about the role of surgeons into this epidemic. I mean, no, it's difficult to say that somebody's at fault, but prescribing habits and things like you talked about, those are scary statistics. So, you know, are, are we at fault? And, and if so, we're even playing a, a major or a minor role in it. What can we do about it as surgeons or what can we do even as staff surgeons teaching uh, our trainees about this prescription and the problem? Yeah, it, it's a very good question. Well, you know, obviously we're all surgeons who are listening here. And it is interesting when you talk, you talk, you give this talk. I mean, my partners and I have given this talk probably 200 times over the past two years and uh, all around. Um, obviously in the state of Michigan, but all around the world for that matter. And if you give this talk to a bunch of surgeons and say, you know, we're the problem here, um, it resonates. For, for non-surgeons, it's, 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 they, uh, they get very non-defensive. And I think it's a cultural difference. I mean, in surgery, you know, we're born and raised to, you know, do morbidity mortality conferences and, and always be kind of, you know, to blame ourselves first and foremost. And I think that is appropriate with respect to this. It's, I don't know, fault is the right word, but I'll take blame for my patients. The patients that I really uh, worry about are um, kidney donors. So we have these totally healthy people um, who, uh, you know, it's kind of the onus is on us to keep them perfect after this relatively big operation when they donate an organ. And uh, and I just kind of worry about how many of these uh, these um, you know healthy people are, are have kind of had a, a major complication related to opioid use after the operation I've done. Um, I think it's easiest for me to just kind of own it and uh, blame myself and try to do better. And that's certainly what's kind of motivated this work. Um, How did we learn how to write for opioids after surgery? We kind of like became an intern and then asked the person uh, at the computer next to us the first time we had to do it. Hey, how many pills do you give for a lap coli? And that number has crept up over the years. Um, You know, I'm 48 years old. So presumably, I don't remember how many I gave. I'm thinking I probably gave probably 20 pills. And when we did this first experiment at our institution, the average number for the residents at the University of Michigan was 45 pills. Um, we repeated the same experiment at the Medical University of South Carolina, and the number was exactly the same. Um, and 45 pills is uh, way too many. So are we, are we to blame? I mean, the opioid epidemic is a remarkably complex um, societal kind of um, problem. Uh, and many people want to talk about the role of pharma and the role of uh, a- access to um, kind of substance use, lack of, of, of access to substance use kind of care. But I mean, the only part I can really affect is the per- behavior and prescribing recommend uh, prescribing habits of surgeons. So um, I think it's, uh, I'll take the blame for that. So. There have been some articles uh, recently published about how uh, there are some patients that are at risk of developing this chronic opioid dependence. Have you found that that there are certain characteristics or profile of these patients that you can talk about and that, you know, we could be as um, residents be teaching to our junior residents and kind of propagating uh, awareness about this topic? Yes, a very good question. So we have spent a lot of time 
collecting data across all the hospitals in the state of Michigan to, to kind of develop evidence-based prescribing recommendations. But they are recommendations and we are, um, you know, this is not uh, like a assembly line. Every patient has a different kind of need and a different story. And to be honest with you, I don't necessarily know for the average patient who has chronic pain or a history of substance use disorder or other important risk factors for um, addiction, um, whether they need more pain pills or less pain pills after surgery. I think it all has to be done on an individualized basis. But um, the risk factors for um, new persistent opioid use after surgery are previous substance use disorder. uh, anxiety is a significant risk factor. Um, other mental health challenges like um, I think depression and and things like fibromyalgia or other pain disorders. Um, those are patients that um, you just have to, before you operate on them, you have to have a very frank discussion. And the discussion needs to go something like this. Um, we care deeply for uh, you, and we are committed to doing our best we can to take care of your pain. Um, the average patient, let's say for lap coli, um, the average patient at, at our institution gets four pills of opioids after a lap coli. Do you think that'll work for you? And the reason it's, it's a small number is that we've, uh, we know that we've caused lots of patients harm um, where they've gone on to uh, new chronic opioid use, and we don't want to get you uh, stuck on these pills. So uh, how do you suggest we take care of your pain? And it is going to hurt, by the way. Um, surgery hurts, and you're not going to be pain-free. But after two or three days, if we just focus, if we take around the clock town on ibuprofen, hopefully it, should, it will be manageable, um, and we will, call, we will be in touch and make sure that you get the best pain, best pain care you can. Um, I think Mike, that, what do you do about that patient, though? Mike, sorry for interrupting, but what do you do about that patient then that says, oh, that doesn't work for me? Tylenol and ibuprofen don't work for me. Or the next patient, oh, I, it's, I'm allergic to this or that or the other thing. And I mean, it's one thing for lap coli, but what about the laparotomy patients and the other ones? How do you navigate those waters? Yeah, great questions. Uh, I've been asked that question also around trauma patients who are always more challenging. And particularly, you know, if they're going home to do physical therapy, and I think trauma patients are higher risk for pretty much everything. Um, I think, uh, uh, um, I don't know if I have a great answer. I'm straight up. Um, it is a uh, long conversation with the patient. I think it is an attend, like something the attending ought to own. Um, and, uh, and I think it comes down to making it clear that we as, as the surgeons care about patient and that it's going to hurt and that's normal and we'll keep in close touch um, and then fr- have frank discussion around um, the implications of if we give you a bottle of 50 pills and you take them all you're going to have withdrawal and you're going to need more and that can lead you kind of down the wrong path um, I think we are all influenced um, by those um, relatively small number of patients who um, ask those, those questions that you mentioned, like, you know, I'm allergic to this, I'm allergic to that. Um, that doesn't work for me. Um, but they're, they're relatively rare between two and 25% of your population, depending on what your population is. Um, and they're high risk patients. And those are patients that need to be seen. One uh, policy that, that I have and we have in our clinics is that 
um, you come into clinic, we will see you anytime um, if you need a refill of opioids. So uh, because I think that's how people kind of go off the tracks. We give them a bottle, a bottle of pills. They take them all. Um, they feel really lousy when they stop taking them. Um, it's not necessarily because of uh, uh, kind of surgical pain, so to speak. They're treating, they're, they're using the opioids um, to make them feel better. And it's frequently what I call psychic angst, but it's a lot of it's anxiety and other kind of things. There's a lot of positive reinforcement when you take um, opioid pills. So, um, but this is why policy and specific guidelines are not the solution here. This is one patient at a time stuff because there are patients absolutely who need um, significant numbers of opioid pills for best care after surgery. But those patients are relatively rare. So Ohio has had some pretty stable law here at the Cleveland Clinic. Obviously, being in Ohio, we've kind of the cradle of having a lot of these opioid problems. And it's kind of been shown out in national statistics. And so the the law in terms of the prescribing patterns has really kind of put its foot down. But we as a department have incorporated into a behavioral therapist, a psychiatrist that meets with our patients ahead of time. Do you have anything like that or any thoughts about that role of it, kind of the, the mental health side of this in terms of this opioid crisis? Yeah, it's a, um, I'm excited to hear that that is happening. Um, as I've reflected on, you know, kind of the fundamental question of why are people taking all these pills? Um, I think it is, uh, comes down to perioperative optimization and patients who have significant kind of chronic pain, mental health disorder, particularly anxiety, really um, can struggle to, to flourish after surgical care. And surgery potentially is a really powerful opportunity to, to kind of help them beyond just, you know, the fixing the surgical problem. Um, so uh, it is kind of a can of worms, you know, when you start talking to people about their childhood in the pre-op, you know, at the pre-op H&P. Um, but I think you understand what they're saying. There are opportunities that we as surgeons can be part of. So I think this is best done maybe at the Cleveland Clinic, but Duke University for people who have, uh, who, at least for elective surgery, um, who are, let's say they're having a laparotomy and you're talking to them pre-op and they have struggled with pain after surgery in the past and they're allergic to this and they're allergic to that. And they can only have, you know, um, you know, fentanyl patches and, and, and you just have a feeling that this is going to be a challenge. Um, they are seen pre-op by the pain team and they make a specific pain plan perioperatively. The pain, the anesthesia pain team does all the prescribing, um, for 90 days after surgery, including the in-hospital prescribing. Um, and they use all the resources of, a, of an awesome uh, paying uh, team at, at Duke University. Um, I think that's probably the best care, care pathway um, to facilitate kind of perioperative pain for the complex patient. And a lot of these patients are, you know, patients getting spine surgery, orthopedic surgery. Um, but um, it's obviously anything that happens kind of in the pre-op area, it's hard to kind of pile in a lot, a lot of new resources there um, because of cost concerns. But um, hats off, I think Duke. Um, is probably doing it the best for the really at-risk patients. I have one um, controversial follow-up question to everything that you mentioned. And, uh, you know, you hear about these ratings that go out and how basically healthcare is now like you're catering to your, uh, to the, your client, to your consumer, um, it's a consumer's market and not a doctor's market. And so 
being a good provider means that you are taking good care of your patients. And part of it, now that pain pain is a vital sign um, and pain is being recorded at like however frequently you are recording your vital signs, this is like it's a big thing that people are your patients are kind of judging you on. Um, and so how do you address that, that patients want want to have good quality uh, pain control? And we have almost seeded this in our society that patients should have patients can expect really, you know, there are things that we can do that can give them pretty much like no pain at all after surgery. And so how do you kind of balance these two things where you want to where you want to do good, you know, take good care of your patients, but also want to tell them that, hey, I'm not going to be curing you of your surgical pain? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, And it was uh, when we first started kind of uh, working in the space, it was the most common question we were asked. And I think a lot of a lot of us as surgeons are, um, you know, some of our um, our not only is the credibility of our practice, our referral patterns, but also our actual salaries are tied into patient reported outcomes. And um, and I think this is actually most relevant uh, for the dentists who are on Yelp. You know, patients kind of leave, you know, narratives. And um, that's certainly when I talk to the dentist. They're like, I, you know, the reason I do this is this is why. Um, one patient in pain, it leaves, you know, a, 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 a mean narrative can jeopardize my practice. Um, but the data is clear. And we've written two papers on this that um, there is no relationship between the number of pills you give and patient-reported outcomes regarding pain. Um, And it seems counterintuitive, but um, the bottom line is you're going to have somewhere between 5 and 10% of your patients calling for a refill and unsatisfied with their pain, whether you give them 10 pills or 100 pills. Um, And that is kind of what our experience has shown. Um, And they they need different types of care. Um, They don't need more refills. Um, So... Uh, in the state of Michigan, we've been working hard to implement these kind of uh, opioid prescribing recommendations, and they're probably about 25 percent um, the number of pills that we were giving two or three years ago. So for Lapcoli, we give 10 oxycodone. Um, we used to give 40. I think across the state, it was about 39. So, um, and what we've been able to accomplish is we've reduced opioid prescribing across the entire state by over 50 percent after surgery. Um, but as we did this, we were, we collect patient reported outcomes around not only pain, but quality of life, regret, um, overall satisfaction with care. And they've actually, um, stayed stable and actually overall quality of, uh, um, satisfaction has actually gone up. Um, so I think we, we were so kind of, we we had so overshot the prescribing. Now I'm not saying that it's as simple as just don't write for any opioids. Um, there's nuance here, and this is why doctors and nurses need to fix this problem and policymakers will struggle. Um, but uh, I think it comes down to you know, authentic conversations with your patient about their pain and how much you care about it and, what, and making a plan pro, um, preoperatively. So we, we tell our patients, hey, you're having a lap coli. You're gonna, we're going to give you 10 pills. We're, this is the plan. We're going to pound ibuprofen. Don't take the pills unless you really need them. Um, here's a little bag to dispose of them when you're done. Um, and we'll call Here's the phone number to call and we will call you to check on you. And we care a lot about um, your recovery. And that has worked. Um, and we've kind of probably done seven or eight different experience, experiments where we've really reduced prescribing upwards of some in some cases 
100%. So some procedures don't write for opioids anymore. Um, in fact, in, in Michigan, half of patients after surgery don't take any opioids. And uh, I think that's certainly um, an achievable goal, particularly for any outpatient, non-orthopedic, non-spine surgical care. So you've touched on this a little bit, but first of all, one question uh, is what do patients do with their unused narcotics? And you said you give them a bag to dispose, but if you can tell us what exactly happens with those, because I think many physicians don't even know what to counsel patients. And then the second question I have is patients discharge and you've, you've counseled them before discharge and told them to call if they have issues or whatever, but should we be making them come in every time they need a narcotic level refill? Or in what circumstances would you feel comfortable for us to be refilling these prescriptions without seeing the patient? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I'll do the first, I'll do the uh, second one first. Um, uh, Quite simply, uh, physician assistants and residents prescribe many significantly more opioids than attending surgeons. And um, refills of opioids should be done by attending surgeons um, because they, you know, there's no continuity among trainees. That's not no one's fault, but it just is what it is. Someone's on call, they call, and you call in a refill. So patients should come in, and the reason they should come in is that, you know, new persistent chronic opioid use is probably the most common complication in surgery, period. Um, And it is a devastating complication for patients. Imagine if, you know, you had, um, any, any of us had surgery and, um, and you're taking opioids every day. Your life is not the same. Um, so uh, they need to come to clinic and they need to be seen. Now, is, there, is that the hard, fast rule? Well, you know, all right, we'll, we'll write you for four pills and you need to come in tomorrow morning. And the, the, the workflow needs to accommodate this. So um, that's best care. So the patient lives 250 miles away. It can be really challenging and you don't necessarily expect them to um, drive 250 miles. But the attending physician, the attending surgeon calls them on the phone, um, attends to their care, or you do an electronic visit or something like that. Um, I think that is best care um, because, you know, uh, I don't think house officers and, um, and physician assistants who haven't, don't know the patient intimately uh, should be re- refilling these uh, prescriptions because um, bottom line is surgical pain should be over in a couple, three days, unless you're doing, you know, re- physical therapy or rehabilitation for the vast majority of operations we do. I mean, big operations, I do liver transplants. Most of our patients don't take any opioids after they're discharged. Now they're in a hospital a long time, but just not um, not necessary. And they can't take ibuprofen, they still do okay. Um, as far as disposal, um, disposal's tough. Um, we've done a couple of uh, trials on this and most patients keep their opioids. And the reason they, they we did a, a national survey of this on older Americans and they basically state, they keep them because they may have pain in the future or they keep them because they paid for them. Um, and certainly I, I can kind of understand uh, that. And uh, my father actually is at a bunch of dermatologic surgery. I've been cranking on opioid, you know, the opioid problem for a couple of years. And relatively recently I called him and it became a clear, he had like nine bottles of Vicodin in, his, in the, in the house. Um, it's like, dad, do you know what I do? He's like, well, I paid for those. So, um, the point being that the vast majority of adults keep the pills. Those pills uh, can really be um, the most common um, kind of motivation for home break-ins in the United States. So you should get them out of your home. And every time I give this talk and I talk about disposal, someone comes up to me and says, oh, you know, we, uh, 
went to get rid of our opioids, we noticed that they were gone. Um, and or we didn't take any after our C-section. We had 25 pills and half the bottle was gone. So people are in all of our homes um, and they uh, um, they are they're dangerous things. So um, I don't have a great solution to how to motivate patients to dispose of them. The current data is about 20 percent um, due on their own. Um, the best we've been able to achieve is about 55% when we give them specific instructions and a, like a charcoal disposal bag um, to dispose of them. Uh, um, so uh, there are, you know, for example, one of the local uh, pharmacies, Kroger, which is a Michigan kind of uh, um, pharmacy uh, um, grocery store, they give everyone these disposal RX little packets to get rid of if they, whenever there's a new prescription for opioids. You can return them. We have a, a map in the state of all the places to take back opioids. Um, usually, they're um, police stations, and that can be a little that can be scary um, for patients. We've gotten that message in the past, and then we do community opioid uh, drives um, throughout our entire state um, that get some out of the communities, and then more and more. Um, uh, we have a we've uh, after two years of meetings, we were able to get uh, opioid disposal box in our surgical clinics. So. We tell patients to bring their opioids back for their post-op visit and, well, they can throw them in the bin. Um, so there's lots of options. I think, uh, you know, it's still, I think a lot of our patients are going to keep a hold of them um, despite our best efforts. So transitioning to um, tips and tricks section of our podcast and what we've decided for this podcast is to kind of discuss a few scenarios um, and see how we would manage um, surgical pain. So the first case that we have is a 40-year-old elective coli that's going to be discharged the same day. And then maybe you can address what if this patient did need a couple days worth of hospitalization if this was like a subtotal or was converted to open for any reason, then what would your pain medication would be of choice in discharge meds? Yeah, um, good question. So for an outpatient elective lap coli, we actually have two pathways um, in the state of Michigan. One is for the, the standard patient, which is 10 oxycodone around the clock, ibuprofen, Tylenol. We actually have a um, program in partnership with Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Michigan where it's called pain optimization pathway. And there are currently like, upwards of 18 procedures with a goal of uh, doing these procedures essentially opioid free. Um, so if the patient w wanted to go through this pathway, the, the pathway is um, it is kind of standard pre-op uh, education around pain. Uh, at discharge, they are given four oxycodone. They're given a kind of a, a schedule of when to take their ibuprofen town all around the clock. Um, and then we call them post-op day one and post-op day three. Um, and essentially, that is now our current practice for the vast majority of our outpatient alapcolis. And we still do give them um, four oxycodone pills for that first night. Um, our data has shown that um, the vast majority of patients take no opioids. And the average, um, the, the median number is zero. The mean number is, is like 0.3. So um, relatively small number of patients take any opioids whatsoever, uh, whatsoever after elective lapcoli. The reason we have this pain optimization pathway is because Blue Cross allows surgeons to build what we call modifier 22, which is an extra 35% surgeon fee on these procedures. And there's about 18 of them. And they've really driven 
they've gotten surgeons' attention, and I think um, uh, change practice quickly. Uh, let's say the, you end up opening the patient, and you do uh, an open colon in the hospital a couple three days. So we do the, our best, the best we can to you know follow enhanced recovery type pathways, um, get people eating um, right away. Um, try to manage them on oral opioids uh, if uh, if possible. We use Toradol aggressively. And uh, when we send them home, we do uh, some assessment of how many pills they're taking in the hospital. If they're not taking any pills in the hospital, then we don't send them home with pills. Um, lots, you'd be amazed how many of your big operations, you know, they're in the hospital so long, they, they, they don't take opioid pills anymore. And then we give them 50 pills to go home. So, um, but we try to schedule... Um, do kind of a, a assessment of how much how much how many pills are taken in the hospital and then prescribe accordingly. I would say for someone like this, they probably go home on ten pills. And then let's also talk about there's a difference sometimes in the opioid prescribing between adults and children. So an appendectomy in an adult versus an appendectomy in a child. Uh, do either of those need opioids on discharge? Yeah. So um, once again, we're talking about the average patient. Um, so no, uh, the vast majority of pediatric surgical procedures um, are now done at our institution um, without any opioids. Obviously, there are exceptions, things like NUS procedures and, and, and um, things like that. But the majority of children aren't given prescription for opioids, and Appy is certainly one of them. Um, in adults, um, our recommendation for appendectomy uh, for lap and open is they uh, presumably they go home in a day. Um, they go home on 10 oxycodone pills. Uh, so um, and that is, uh, we still encourage patients to take none, but this is kind of based on, um, this is enough pills to kind of, uh, in the state of Michigan, that 80% of people will take less than that. That's how we kind of come up with our recommendations is kind of at the 80th percentile so um, of consumption. So uh, 10 oxycodone. Um, and then Appy is also one of these pain optimization pathway procedures. And they, I think, in the pain optimization pathway, um, they go home on four pills, just like Lapcoli, and uh, and we ex- we kind of help them take no pills. Um, and I think the important point is taking no pills um, is probably the right thing for the majority of patients. But potentially, I don't have data on this, but patients who have struggled with substance use disorder in the past might be particularly important for them. Um, but um, I that once again, it's kind of done by on a case by case basis. So at the Cleveland Clinic, we have a long-standing enhanced recovery protocol for colorectal surgery. Cap blocks have uh, now made their way into mainstream for that. How do you handle colorectal surgery, colectomies, APRs, things like that? Yeah, so I think we've all learned from uh, the uh, kind of the care pathways at the Cleveland Clinic. We have a statewide care pathway for colon surgery for LAP um, and for open um, and uh, aggressively use kind of all of the adjuncts possible. I don't think there's a several bullet people I always ask about, you know, taking like things like Neurotin and stuff like that. I don't know. I think basically just, um, you know, local, regional, multimodal um, uh, anesthesia and um, makes sense. We uh, tap blocks are recommended um, and sent home on 15 oxycodone, Tylenol, ibuprofen around the clock. Some controversy about the use, obviously, of ibuprofen, but we've gotten our colorectal surgeons in the state to agree to it. And um, we still, we expect the majority, particularly lap colectomy patients to not need any opioids. And what about endovascular procedures as these are becoming more and more prominent in the vascular world? Uh, Yeah, zero. 
So uh, they're part of our pain optimization pathway. And for a standard EVAR, we expect patients to not need any opioids and we don't write for them. So we'll move on to our final five, which is uh, just some questions that are a little more personal or you know, non-medical that we ask for our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, so our first question, if you didn't have to sleep, what would you do with that extra time? I would keep my family awake and I'd play video games with my uh, children. Our next question for you, who is your go-to band or artist if you do listen to music in the operating room? Yeah, good question. I am not a big music person. I usually ask whomever I'm with what what uh, what they want to listen to. But if I'm left to my my own, I I listen to the White Stripes. And my I think if I have any trademark about music in the operating room is I always like to have it on because when I get nervous, I ask them to turn off the music, and I always found it's a good way. It's a better way for, than for me saying I'm nervous <laughs> than. Uh, for everyone in the room to kind of be aware that bad things are about that, you know, about to happen. I mean, I do mostly liver transplants and just kind of once in a while you get, a, you get the sense that things are on the edge. So um, I will just turn off the music. We're trying, trialing some new questions here. So this one might be a little weird, but what age do you wish you could permanently be or phrase another way? Is there a period in your life that was just something that you wish you could go through again? Uh, today, I mean, being an academic surgeon, and doing all the cool things I get to do, I, you know, I get to do cool operations and help patients. I get to try to fix, you know, big problems uh, in in the state of Michigan and, and then beyond. I'm um, working with all the residents and the students um, who you know are doing lab time. Um, and one of my other hats I wear is I kind of run the the uh, medical school curriculum. So uh, it's the best it's ever been. Um, and I'm not so old that. Uh, that I can't still like, kind of get up in the morning and go for a run. Isn't that a Tim McGraw song? <laughs> <laughs> uh, our next question for you. Uh, what is something that you have done that you would recommend everyone should do at least once in their lives? I think every surgeon should exercise every day. I think it's fundamental to optimal performance, you know, long-term in the operating room. Um, and I think you know, we have a physical job and we need to kind of take care of ourselves. So we need to, people say we don't have time. I think we should make time for that. And then two is I will say uh, my new boss, Justin Dimmick, has set up this uh, mini sabbatical program. So my family and I are going to Europe for the summer. Um, I'm going to learn some stuff from the National Health Service and uh, enjoy kind of a different experience professionally. Uh, and I'm uh, very excited about that. And I'm uh, um, I think the diversity of see, seeing care differently um, and then kind of the, the way they think about improving care um, will inform my ability to to have an impact. But as importantly, it's just kind of a really cool experience for me and my family. So uh, I hope everyone gets to do something like that at some point in their professional career. We hope so, too. That sounds awesome. So our last question for you, what are you currently reading? And uh, if you're not currently reading something, what's on your reading list? Um, yeah, so I'm currently reading this uh, book called Flourish by Martin Seligman. Um, he uh, kind of is the father of positive psychology. Um, it was given to me by Jocelyn Dew. She's one of the uh, Michigan surgical residents, works with me uh, in the lab. And it's all about uh, kind of how to um, facilitate well-being. And it's really not about, um, and I'm, I'm about as well as anyone I know, um, but as I've tried to, uh, as we've done, I've done more work in the opioid epidemic, I've been very humbled by 
the devastation of kind of things like anxiety and depression and substance use disorder and how um, so many of our patients that we touch have these fundamental problems that are way bigger than anything we as surgeons are ever going to be able to impact. And I'm uh, in a big picture trying to figure it out the way I could be part of a solution for some of these people. Um, probably not as a surgeon, but um, the book Flourish by Martin Seligman. Uh, it's not an easy read, but it's a great read. Well, we truly appreciate the opportunity for you coming on Behind the Knife with us. And congratulations on all the great work you're doing, not only in this, but with the collaborative as a whole. And uh, we sure hope that we can have you back uh, as a guest or even on a panel sometime in the future. Great. It's an honor and a pleasure. I'm a big fan. And thank you for your time. Until next time, dominate the day.